Ben. Hey, Don. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. So what's going on with you? Um, I've been, uh, I've been, I've been doing a lot of, uh, I don't know what you call it. It's not really blogging. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's blog commenting. I think maybe you'd call it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, blog commenting. I'm getting really good at it. You are, you're jumping into the fray as they, <laughs> as they say. Is that what they say? Well, that's what I would say. That's what I say. You're a, you're a fray jumper. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that's cool. I, I, um, do you want to, uh, I mean, this, this is follow up. Um, it is. this fits it. Do you want, do you want to talk about it? Let's do it. All right. So, uh, so you're, you're doing a lot of, uh, commenting, um, based on, uh, um, a, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, an, an episode that we recorded and posted, uh, yesterday. Well, we recorded la- uh, a week and a half ago and we posted yesterday about, uh, where we had, uh, David Gumpert from the complete patient on and, uh, David posted a, a summary of uh, of our conversation um, from from his perspective, and and then there's been some some excitement going on back and forth on uh, in the comment section of his blog. Yeah, I don't I don't know I don't know about excitement. It's exciting there, for me. There, there, <laughs> it's exci- there are, excitement for sure. There are, there are 112 comments. <laughs> um, uh, not half of them are from me, but but I have a bunch of them, and and what. And just for, and we'll and we'll link to uh, we'll link to uh, his his blog post again, and you can read through the the comments. It's a little it's a little bit difficult to read because of the way that comments are threaded on the site, and it also like if you for example if you only wanted to look for the comments from a certain person, there is something funky with the way search works on that on that site so for example i'm posting under the username d schaffner but if you go to that page and you look for d i guess no maybe it is maybe it is working uh all right so i was i was thinking you couldn't you couldn't search for all the the comments from a particular person but if you actually it looks like it is working so my uh, my error but um yeah so i have been uh reading the comments and then responding where appropriate and there's one particular person on that on that blog who goes by the username of raw milk mike who has sort of i don't what i don't know how to, the right way to characterize it but it, but he has definitely responded to my posts and then i responded to his post and then you you could call it a discussion um <laughs> we, we I'll call got it a discussion. a discussion about what is a discussion. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, well, uh, and that was not, not to be too meta. Yeah, it it, it went really uh, tangential at that point. Um, <laughs> uh, but but the I, I mean the the comment here here's my my summary of the whole um, situation. Um, uh, a month ago, when we uh, referred to um, our our lamentation, I'm not even sure if that if I pronounce that right or if it's a word. But we, yeah, that's a word. Yeah, we were we were lamenting that we have a situation uh, in the U.S. where you've got some states where raw milk is regulated and legal, and others where it's not. And in those states where it's not legal, um, there are people like you and I, or uh, probably even people that know dairy much better than you and I, that could really be a resource to folks in the raw milk world. But because it's an illegal product, that resource isn't available to them. So we were, we referred to it as raw milk Amsterdam, um, uh, in reference to the wire. And so here, that that's the history. We got to this situation where we did that a, a month ago or five weeks ago now, 
and that information got posted to a, a situation where um, there really is an o- a, 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 a open channels of dialogue going on here. Um, I'm not sure, and, and you and I had shared some some texts and emails. Not sure whether it's moved much, but it, it's not a um, two camps not talking to each other at all. There, there, there is some. Here's some information. Here, I don't agree with it. Um, let's let's argue about things here um, that may have to do with the conversation. But but somewhere in the um, the 112 or 113 comments, there is this string of, um, of, of progress, I think in, in some, and, and I say that like, I'm negotiating some, um, and I'm not even really doing the negotiate. You're, you're negotiating some, uh, you know, trade agreement between two countries. It looks like there's been movement though. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure that I'm negotiating. <laughs> no, I agree. I'm, I'm just. <laughs> I just said that to be fun. Yeah, to be funny. Thanks. Um, well, you know, and it's talk about talk about you know, uh, you know, flashback to our discussion with David, and then also his blog post, which is entitled "The Negotiating on Raw Milk Standards Has Begun," and that's right. And again, this is this is we kind of talked about this in the after dark after the the episode with David is that he very much perceives this as a negotiation and i don't think you and i are really in it to negotiate anything we're 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 not we're not uh risk we're not risk managers right um we're not regulatory officials we're we're educators and researchers and so we're interested in researching about raw milk and we're interested in educating about raw milk and that and that could be that could be. I mean, just so that, and I'm trying to choose my words very carefully because I don't want to, I don't want to presume that we are we're in this hierarchical relationship where we, the experts from the university, are going to come to you and we are going to teach you what you need to know. Um, honestly, it, part of that education may be listening to what the progressive raw milk people are doing, and then working to educate our food science and food microbiology colleagues about their misconceptions. So I don't, I, I don't, I perceive my job to be one of educating anybody that needs educating, um, whether they have a PhD or whether they don't. And if I, if I see that, that, that maybe they have a, a simple misunderstanding about something. And again, that was sort of where that was the entry point for me for commenting on David's blog post was that somebody made a comment about minimum infectious dose. And as, <laughs> right. as long-time listeners to this podcast will know, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things that, that pretty much engage me, and that is one that engages me. So I said, oh, here's my thing, right? Here's the thing I that I like, yeah. <laughs> I, li- <laughs> I like to talk to people about. Um, and so uh, let's talk about, because, you know, I mean, there, there are a few things that I think I'm qualified to talk about. I mean, I'm not... I'm I'm not infinitely qualified to talk about all topics. I try to, you know, know what it is that that I know and 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 talk about those things. But in this particular case, I felt like, okay, well, here's a here's an opportunity for me to just carve out this tiny little area where I think I can do some education about dose response and minimum infectious dose, and and because I think that's a valuable concept. It's a valuable concept for people in the food industry. Um, and they often don't understand that it's certainly a valuable concept for uh, raw milk drinkers uh, 
to to understand. It's a concept for raw milk producers to understand this whole idea that we probably eat pathogens on a regular basis. And if we eat a low level of pathogens, the odds are that we are not going to get sick, but a low level of pathogens consumed over a long time will eventually lead to illness. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the simplistic um, expression of that. And, and of course, that little entry point, that little wedge that drew me in um, just spawned a whole lot of Again, I'll, I'll I'll use the words discussion. We can we can have a discussion about what it means to have a discussion, Ben. But anyway, it, it was it was fun, um, and and it was. I reached the point where, you know, previously in in my commenting on uh, the complete patient, it just really wound me up. I mean, I could I could feel my blood pressure rising. I mean, just just and just me start to get angry. And that's generally not a healthy place to write from. It's not a healthy place to be. Um, and that didn't really happen this time. I, I took it as, and again, the person I was interacting with characterized it as a chess match. And, and, and to, yeah, I think, and again, it's not a game, right? We're talking about people's lives. But if you, if you take things like that as Again, I, I don't. I don't want. I use. I'm going to use the word game, but I don't. I don't use it in a light sense. If you treat it as an exercise or as a game, where you know your objective is to communicate certain things and to and to listen to what other people have to say, and again, not to try to not make it personal, try to not make it inflammatory, try to not say the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Which is a big problem with the internet, right? People have this, you know, ability to, through a, a bit of anonymity and, a, and, a, and a, 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 the, the gratification of instantaneous response, people say what they think without that time to filter. So I very much tried to, you know, not be rude and not be abusive and really try to listen to what they had to say and tried to educate or, or share you know, if, if I had something from my experience that would help them. But anyway, it's been, it's been a much more productive exercise than previous, um, interactions on, on David's blog. But I have to, as I, as I shared, I think in my final comment, I, I had to, I had to, I have to go do my job, right? I have, I have stuff I have to do. So <laughs> I am, I am not going to be responding to any, any more comments, um, uh, on, on this thread. I mean, David could have another blog post and I'll, I'll wait in then, but, um, I'm, I'm done. So anyway. <laughs> Well, good, and because it's just your weekend hobby. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and that's what I did instead of um, a lot of the work that I should have done. But <laughs> well, but here, here's the the thing, and I and I stepped out of, the, of this discussion. And I will I will not put that in um, dick fingers. I mean, this this was a discussion. Um, I, I stepped out of it um, sort of on purpose. I really. Uh, you know, and I'm I'm glad you 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 jumped in um, to. Um, to the you know to the fray as, as I said before, but I, I kind of stepped out because I really wanted to see what the where, where it was going to go. I wanted to, to sit back and, and and sort of watch, and a couple of things sort of popped up. One which which our community. You know, I don't know. It's it's definitely that it's pervasive within in some of our colleagues, um, and not with us. But we're we're grouped with with this thought, this generalization that um, you and I want to ban raw milk because of who we are, not because of what our um, what our uh, interests are, what we believe uh, about sort of freedom to to eat things, or as I mentioned in the podcast, eat, drink, or smoke what you want. 
but but because of where we come from there this this came up in in five or six different posts from different people we absolutely are are perceived as someone who or, or in a group that wants to ban raw milk and that's where the discussion breaks down that's where the whole thing um goes away it's that how could we possibly be thinking about um, risk reduction steps or, or giving tools to risk managers if we just want the stuff banned. And that's, I mean, uh, you know, talking personally on this, that is not the case. Um, because I think it's a waste of time. I think, you know, as, as you and I have talked about this a, a lot, but as soon as that becomes the, the starting point, um, things kind of break down. Um, David, David wrote something and hopefully I can find this, um, uh, quickly, but David wrote wrote something in the comment sections about um, you know, the appreciation. Um, okay, here let, let me quote, and he's responding to, to Mark McAfee, who's been uh, very vocal uh, on this blog and elsewhere. It says Mark, it's important to think about the process you describe as a two way street. We, including those regulators, PhDs, and researchers, have become distant from traditional food production. The main national policy goal over the last 50 years has been cheap food. Those who have been opposed to raw milk and those pushing for wider availability each have much to learn for each other. That's how the wide the chasm has become. That characterized kind of my, my thoughts and, and what I mentioned to, to David uh, and you on our podcast uh, in episode um, uh, 55, uh, that we – that the that the public discussion is getting nasty i think it's because of that because there's no it's it's um the it's about the perception uh and generalization about um who the players are on on each side of it and that's where it all kind of breaks down so i, I mean i think that i appreciate um all your your hobby time on this this week because it's it's made for yeah it's not just anecdotal or these people are crazy or we're, you know, dickheads about it or whatever. I think we can say that, um, with iTunes, but it, it's Richard, it, Richard heads, Richard heads, Richard heads. Um, I think we, I, I, it's, it's more about, um, okay, here's, here are, uh, here is where I'm coming from and here's where you're coming from. And we're not even close to coming from the same situation. It's all about on, I, I think on the, um, and, and David, characterize that in his comments on the on, on the podcast where when we started talking about risk management practices and what makes for a better um raw milk dairy he's like well that's that's not really my area i'm, I'm about you know uh where uh, the availability of it and, and um uh, laws around it which is totally fine what you know what, what we probably need is someone who is a proponent who is uh, that, that that's a, a more useful discussion as we, uh, as we go forward. Right. And, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's a very, that's a very good summary of, uh, of the discussion and, and, but this, but th- this issue, I mean, this is, this is one, again, this is one of my, my things that sets me off is when people, and I called a couple people out for it. When people say stuff that I believe or, or say, 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 when people think they know what I believe, or they know what I think, or even when they when they know what I said, yeah, right. <laughs> and I and I called I called David out for it a little bit on the on the podcast on on episode fifty five. I never said that thing. I mean, I think I mean you know it's a podcast and it's not scripted as much as we'd love to do a, a scripted podcast. Um, and it, you know sometimes you do say things that that you don't necess- that that in 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 reconsidering you would say you would say differently but for the most part I choose my words pretty carefully but people do um, do have this perception and mischaracterize 
what we say. I mean, again, just to, to look at, um, obviously, I'm not completely disengaged from Raw Milk Mike because I'm looking at his post here. He says, um, I, I thought I had to share. So, so he says Don's podcast. Apologies, Ben. He calls it my podcast, but it's, we know it's our podcast. Um, Whatever. I'm... He, he says Don's podcast is apparently a homemade comedy show for fellow food safety specialists. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, I guess he thinks maybe we have one listener. Well, hang on a second. Specialist? Could be. Um, also, I actually took that as a bit of a compliment because I do kind of think it is a homemade, homemade comedy, comedy show. show. And so he kind of – he got us. Yeah. And <laughs> he says they call us these people. I think he left off the Richard Fingers there. Um, and apologies. We don't, we don't mean to call you these people. We're, we just need a way to refer to people that are raw milk drinkers or raw milk advocates. And we need a shorthand for that. Um, and then he says they are clearly after small producers. They almost seem to be admitting they want them out of business. Now, I want to I just go on the record here and say, well, and as I said in my, my comment, um, I'm, my job in part is to help food processors of all sizes. And I don't want small producers out of business. I just want them to make safe food. The only people that I want out of business, whether they're big or small, or those that don't make safe food or don't want to make safe food, even even the ones that don't make safe food, but that still want to, that want to do the right thing, but they have a mistake, they do something wrong. Those are the people that I want to help. So I just want to go on the record as saying I'm not after small producers. Uh, I don't want them to be out of business. I just want them to be safe. And there are some very unique challenges to regulating small businesses. Um, and gosh, I mean, I'm a huge, I'm a huge believer in entrepreneurs and small businesses, but it's damned hard to make safe food. Um, you know, and the good news is, I guess, if you're a small producer and you make a mistake, I don't know if it's good news, but if you're a small producer and you make a mistake, it's unlikely that you'll be caught because the signal is is so small that no one's going to notice. Um, but you know, th- that said, I still think, and and again, from my years of work, years of working with entrepreneurs in the state of New Jersey and elsewhere, is ninety nine point nine percent of them, or ninety nine percent of them, let's say for sure want to do the right thing. They want to make safe food. They don't want to make anybody sick. And, and you know, those are the ones that I want to help. And I help them when I can, as best I can. So anyway. Well, it's, yeah, I, have, I have nothing to add to your statement. I mean, <laughs> I mean. Oh, so you are after small. Food. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Other than saying, um, you know, I think you and I have, um, as you've characterized it there, we have the exact same philosophy on it. The the thing that um, that I like to use as as my you know calling card or catchphrase is I don't really care how large or how small that um, a food producer or a food manufacturer is. Um, you can make people sick either way. Um, you know, it, 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 size doesn't matter. Size independent, um, and it. It's about whether you can manage risks or not, and and a good food business to me is is someone who who can manage risk, and you can do that as, as you mentioned. Horrible if you're large, and horrible if you're small, or well if you're large, and well if you're small. It's not about size or location or production method. Um, for me, the, these food safety risks are are independent, um, independently managed. They may be in, 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 um, impacted by that. Um, I, and in fact, that's, 
that's the niche that I've, I'm passionate about it are um, small organizations. And I, and I don't work as much with businesses as you do or as my colleagues um, here at NC State and other places. I, I work a little bit um, w- with small businesses. But, man, stuff like school and community gardens, you know, I've had a real interest in, in that area because I think there's a perception that if you're in this temporary event, temporary, you know, volunt- food volunteers that you can't do things safely um, within some of our um, colleagues and regulators' minds. Um, and I, and I, I vehemently disagree with that. I think that someone who um, who cares about food safety and, and as you characterized it exactly, someone who wants to make food safely um, can do it. And we've got to um, – and I have to um, – do everything that I can to, to provide them the resources to do so. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, that we're, we are very similar on that, um, side of things and, and how, you know, we can't, we can't speak for, for others on this. I mean, this is, this is a, the Don and Ben show or the Ben and Don show, depending on, um, whose parents you ask. Um, and, um, but, but we're, you know, there are for sure, there are other people in, in our world that don't believe that way. And there are other people in our world that do, and probably work, um, even more closely with small businesses, uh, that, that, that even do want to make food unsafe, but our people are trying to convince them, um, to make it safer. So it's, so it, uh, what, what, and, yeah, I hope that we clarify that these, the, you know, the, these people statement that it's not a, the, a there. There's a continuum of people who enjoy raw milk, um, as well as a continuum of food safety professionals who address raw milk uh, risks. You know, there's we're not all we're not all the same. Um, even yeah, so so it was, but it, this has been. I mean, going back to when we started this podcast two and a half years ago, almost, you know, whatever, almost three years ago when this uh, conversation first came up, this is exactly the type of stuff I wanted us to be doing. Uh, like this, this is, and I, we, we've, we've got a, um, a theme here, which for some of our listeners, it might turn them off. That's fine. Sometimes it's for you. Sometimes it's, it's not, but we we're really getting to, a, a, a place where we're having frank and open discussions with other people around food safety risks and, and we're sharing ideas and, and concepts and, and we're, we're learning stuff. I mean, the, um, uh, the information about raw milk standards and the raw milk, um, Institute, I think it's called, uh, that, that some of that stuff that David brought up and now we've seen on the, uh, on his website and, and investigated there, that's the, that, that, that's the progression that, that, I, um, that I'm interested in, but just, I mean, uh, b- between us posting raw milk Amsterdam and where we are today, uh, this is seriously like exactly what, what I feel like we should be doing. Yeah, and and I want I want to say too, um, we have had through 
you know, back channels, not through posting on, on the blog, we have had um, folks from the raw milk community reach out to us and say, hey, thanks for engaging. And um, <laughs> one of them, one of them <laughs> says, um, uh, some, one of them apologizes on behalf of Mark Aff- uh, McAfee about his brash comments about PhDs. I, I, I honestly, thanks to Mark, man, because that's one of the best show titles ever. Yeah, we, we, we fact, he I'm, won. <laughs> I, I think, I think I'm, I'm ready to, to rename the podcast. Damn it, <laughs> Do you think um, we, um, <laughs> I've got a T-shirt here. Do you think we just send Mark a T-shirt? Just let him know. I, I'm sure we can find his email or his oh, yeah. uh, email. All right, let's, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do, do that. it. Done. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I want a T-shirt. This is damn ignorant PhD, but um, <laughs> we'll work on that. We can work on that. But but I but again, I want you know one of the and I, I've shared this with with other folks, um, uh, you know, via email uh, as well is that. Um, this this association Rami uh, R A W M I um, seems to be moving in the right direction, right? From from my from my perspective, that these are people that are raw milk producers. They know they realize. I think that there have to be standards. And and here's the thing: we've talked about this before on the podcast. I know um, if you don't wait for for the regulators to come to you. Get out ahead of them. Come together as an industry and get your act together, get organized, and propose some standards that all of you agree to and lead the way ahead of the regulators because you're always going to end up in, I think, in my, my opinion, I don't have any data to back this up, just, just you know, uh, observation, um, that you'll, you'll come out ahead of things because you, you, know your, you know your industry better than any regulator. So get together get organized, get some standards, have a process by which those standards can be modified um, and changed if needed, involve the relevant experts, and then move forward. And it seems to me, and I really want to learn more about Rami and, and how, the, how they're operating and, and how they decide on their standards. And, and honestly, it seems like if, if a producer, and maybe I shouldn't talk about this on, on the podcast, but it, it seems to me that if a producer is following the Rami standards, they're collecting a lot of data. And as a guy who does risk assessment, man, I love data, right? Yep. I mean, then that's one thing that's really missing from a lot of this raw milk discussion is data. And if we have data, like, so for example, Rami has proposed standards um, or has standards that people who, who, who are, people are following. Um, and we ought to be able to learn from the data that's being collected through statistical analysis, through risk assessment, through modeling, whether those are the right standards, whether those standards make any difference whatsoever. Um, and, you know, that, to me, that's, that's fantastic. And so if the only thing that has come out of this, and it's not the only thing, but, it, but if the only thing to come out of this would be for me to have an awareness with Rami and to have contact with folks that are involved in that organization um, – that's to me. That's a fantastic thing. Yeah, agreed. And and I think some of the uh, the comments and, and even in, in David's discussion with us on the last episode, um, you and I, you know, I, I think and, and lots of our colleagues, I think, have this understanding that um, that any food business sector has, um, you know, very good players and, and not so good players. And, and how, you know, to me, the question is, well, how can raw milk be any different from, from that? It's not to say that, um, 
that it's that it's bad or good. It's just that there's like you know I've mentioned this word a million times now, but it's it, there's some continuum, and and what makes for a good producer or a good dairy really matters, especially in a situation where in some states you've got this black market. Even if those those folks are doing stuff um, uh, against the um, the rules, I'd want them to to follow the best available science. Um, and so, so, you know, it sounds like Rami is really, um, doing that, um, and, and using the, um, the examples in, in regulated States as, as a way to, um, uh, to generate some of those, those standards. And I don't, I mean, I, I guess I don't know enough about it now to, to pass judgment, but I want to, I, I'm interested in, um, as, as you are in learning more about it and, and being able to. Um, to understand how their uh, how, how that group operates and, and how they share that information and, and how well it's implemented. So, uh, are we are we raw milked out for a while? <laughs> we uh, we follow up. Don, is your is your microphone off? Damn it! Yeah, <laughs> yes. Damn it! Um, that uh, that might of, be your follow up. Do you have an off button or you mute button for your microphone I, this I week? I do. What I'm going to put it on mute now. On off, yeah, you're working. That's <laughs> it's working. Good. It's working. Cool. But um, also, I'm trying to. I'm hovering over this uh, mute button a lot today because there is a house being built directly behind my house, and I'm recording at home. So you may. I'm not. Cur- I'm not a carpenter. I'm not uh, working in my workshop today um, <laughs> for this. And, and my apprentice is, you know, building something. It's just that someone is hammering behind me. Okay, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, You're welcome. I think we've we've uh, successfully avoided all the ambient noise in, in my house, uh, so that's good. Um, but yeah, there's a couple there's a couple more things. One that that I just I want to uh, again uh, call out again to folks that that have reached out to us and then are interacting with us. And this one is uh, from Twitter, and it's uh, Teresa Lamb, who is a um, uh, person from New Jersey. Uh, she is uh, let's see uh, in her Twitter bio, she says, "Let's talk about healthy local traditional foods, permaculture." and Green Living, NOFA, New Jersey board member. Um, and then, uh, you know, she links to her Facebook page. So Wait, she, Don, hang on a second. Yeah. A person from New Jersey? One of those people? <laughs> so angry right now, Ben. I know, I know. <laughs> um, not, not quite angry enough to link to the picture of Merlin, but almost. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but one of the things that Teresa said, um, and she, uh, she, she, sent, she, she gives us a compliment. She says, good show. More please on reducing risk of raw milk or RM, um, bootlegging versus legalizing and regulating. And, and you know, my response to her was, you know, I, we would love to discuss that. But unfortunately, it's mostly theoretical. Like I would right. love to be able to assess the risks of something being illegal versus – well, not, not of something, but of raw milk being illegal versus, versus regulated. And, you know, again, there's been a lot of discussion in the news about, about drug legalization and drugs in general with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's tragic death recently from, from heroin overdose. Um, and so there are – there are examples, I think, and again, David sort of made fun of us before for again raw milk Amsterdam. The whole, it's, yeah. it's just it keeps coming back to keeps coming back to that. Um, but I think, and again, at some point, as I shared in the last podcast, at some point the analogy breaks down. But um, you know, the idea of if you make something illegal, it's it becomes a lot harder to control because now it's suddenly a black market. And to re- and to Teresa's point, um, I am not sure if there's any data on 
you know, and, and then we get into this issue of uh, differences in, in epidemiology in different states and the strength of epidemia, uh, state departments of, of health and, 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 you know, how do you compare because different states have different regulations, but different states also have a different ability to detect problems because of differences in, in funding for epidemiology. And so it becomes very, very tricky. But, but I think it's an interesting point. I'm just not sure that we're, as I said in my you know limited tweet response to Teresa, um, it's it's a theoretical discussion because I don't think there's any data. Oh my my microphone my microphone button is working too well, Don. I wasn't able to turn it off. Um, yeah, sorry. And 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 then and then and then the other if, and then unless you have a response to that, I have no response to that. Okay, the next thing and this is. This is this is just a weird thing, and I don't understand it. Um, and and again, I don't want to I don't want to wind people up, but it really seems like there are people in the raw milk community that have a hatred, and I I'm not I don't think I'm being too strong in using that word a hatred for epidemiology, right? Um, and and you see that in uh, David's critique of the Minnesota paper, which started this this whole uh, this whole digression or this whole you know show, <laughs> show arc because we know it's a scripted show <laughs> this whole this whole show arc. Um, and you know, and raw milk Mike posted a very humorous YouTube video, which is disparaging of epidemiologists. It's from a lecture, which I think is given by an epidemiologist. So, but I, and I don't I don't understand it's. I don't understand where it's coming from because I – and again, maybe it's my rose-colored glasses, you know, of, of blind – you know, which I, uh, which, which I always put on whenever I look at epidemiologists because, you know, I, I guess I secretly want to be one or something. Right. <laughs> um, but I don't understand it. Well, and I, and I, just, I just want to put that out there to see if you had any perspective on that. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if we have an answer, but, but it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's puzzling to me. I, I, understand, I understand why they don't like the FDA, right? Yeah, that, was, that one's clear. clear. Yeah. I don't understand why they don't like the CDC and why they don't like epidemiologists because the CDC is not a regulatory agency. I don't – and again, maybe it's my ignorance of the subject. I don't know if CDC has come out formally against raw milk. Um, and I, and again, I don't, I don't, I didn't see the Minnesota study as being particularly like like David very much had the perspective that 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 study was out to get raw milk producers, and the CDC was behind it, and the CDC funded the study, and I think we're, you know, we're it's pretty clear to me that they they pr- provided in kind support, not not actually financial funding, and even if they did provide financial funding, um, you know the the, the way that funding works today you're anyway at least the way that i treat funding is that you can give me money to do something but it doesn't mean that i'm going to say what you want um you know the whole thing just baffles me yeah so here's my perspective on that it's not the first time that i've heard the hate hate to epidemiologists or distrust or using um the limitations of epidemiology to, to one's point. Um, I think this is, uh, came up more and more. And we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast in previous episodes, but came up a lot to the forefront in, in my world around, um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, 2008 Salmonella St. Paul outbreak. Um, and it, so 
I mean, to, to rehash that outbreak, um, initially CDC and, uh, had uh, data that showed that people were getting sick from eating tomato dishes. Salmonella had been linked to a lot of tomato, uh, uh, illnesses in the past. So they went forward and said, look, we think that this outbreak is associated with tomatoes and, and the industry, um, especially in Florida took a big nosedive, um, or, I mean, tomatoes all across the, the U S and then, um, you know, further uh, epidemiological evidence kind of pointed to, to, yes, tomato dishes, things like salsa that also contain peppers and that Salmonella St. Paul was linked to peppers. And there's still some debates out there on whether initial uh, illnesses were tomato linked or not. Anyway, the the issue that I've seen and the perspective that I can bring to it is since that time, when I've spoken to producers about outbreaks, farm groups, there's always a few people in the room that use that example and say, we can't trust epidemiology because it destroyed that industry. And it's as sort of trite a, a statement as that. It's not, and, and, and I guess it's, it's that Nothing in epidemiology has changed since that that point. In fact, the data that goes into it has gotten better, I mean, over the last 15 years comparatively. And and we'll talk a little bit about this, actually. This is a tie-in for um, history of IAFP. But things have have gotten better, but there is this this innate... um, mistrust or, as you put it, hatred towards that epidemiological community because somehow they're seen as responsible for, um, for impacting business or impacting trade or impacting whatever. And I, and I see that being the same thing, um, or, or similar in, in the raw milk, um, discussion and what we've seen on the, uh, on the complete, complete patient comment board that it, it's not, um, it's a, a misunderstanding on what epidemiology is about and, and putting too much focus on, um, on that epidemiology is to pro- provide some sort of a truth. And, and it's, a, it's a tool that we absolutely need to give us an indication of where we need to look more, I mean, in, in, in my mind. Um, but but uh, you know again that's and I'm not sure if you've you've had any perspective on that or any um, you know similar uh, situations. But but absolutely I, I could bet every extension related talk that I have given to producer groups where that outbreak has been mentioned or some specific outbreak that comes up that but we you know that but they got that wrong and epidemiology sucks because of that. Yeah, no, and I, that. thank you for reminding me of that, and that's definitely something that, that I'm aware of. And again, I keep coming back to this great quote <clears throat> uh, from, from Paul Mead back in the mid-90s, you know, and I, I, love, I love quotes from smart people. And, and, and again, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it's something to the effect of uh, Paul Mead, who's a CDC epidemiologist, talking about um, making announcements. And he says, if we, if we, if we, if we make an announcement about an outbreak and we're wrong, we were too early. And if we make an announcement about an outbreak and we're right, we were too late, right? In other words, in other words, if they're wrong, they should have waited. And if they're right, why didn't you say something sooner? Exactly. And, and so they're always caught in that, in that crossfire. And I think, and that's part of, I think that's part of my affection for epidemiologists is that, I mean, as a, a risk assessment guy and as a modeling guy and as a guy who uses statistics to do his job, I'm comfortable with uncertainty and I'm comfortable with predictions that aren't necessarily right because I, my, I, you know, I, I think we live in, I mean, my, 
I mean, we live in a world that is uncertain, and our even our ability to have knowledge about that world is uncertain. And I'm and I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with the fact that sometimes someday I will build a model, or maybe I have built a model that is wrong. Um, just like, and again, I, I again apologies to long-term listeners of the podcast. I've made this analogy before, and I'll keep making it because I think it's a really good one. It's like a map. A model is like a map, and. The map tells you it's a representation of reality. It's an abstraction of reality. And guess what? Sometimes it's wrong. A model is sometimes wrong. An epidemiological uh, statistical association is, is sometimes wrong. And that's, and that's okay. And we need to be okay with that. And we need to not demonize the entire profession of epidemiology just because they're occasionally wrong. I think that m- more often they're right. I mean, again, you know, take it all the way back to Jon Snow and the cholera outbreak in London and the pump handle and all of that mythology around that story. Um, but, but, you know, epidemiology has – wouldn't have succeeded as a discipline if it wasn't right more often than it was wrong and if it didn't help people at least some of the time. And, and I'm comfortable with things that don't work all of the time, that do work some of the time and that, that do that in – uh, a reproducible, provable way, and again, maybe that's part part of why epidemiologists rely. I mean, I must be one. Of, I mean, it, it is why epidemiologists rely on statistics so much because they're always looking for correlation. And of course, correlation doesn't always mean causation, but sometimes it does, and it, it points you to, in the right direction at least. Let me um, let me tie some follow up into this. Okay, <laughs> into this follow up. So I had. Um, uh, I'm friends with a uh, a, a um, horticulture agent on Facebook, and I don't know if you saw this discussion on my uh, Facebook feed, but but here's the um, the, the uncertainty piece put into into action, and um, you know everything around foodborne illness. When, you know, when, when we talk about risk, we're not talking about hundred percent consequence. In fact, that's the whole point of risk is that there is some sort of a chance of a consequence and we're trying to calculate what that chance is. So, um, the, a post for that, that I was tagged in goes like this. We went grocery shopping last night. I buy two frozen pizzas a month, uh, two frozen pizzas a month for quick emergency meals. Tonight, I was about to prepare dinner laden with fresh veggies when I noticed those two pizzas have been left on the counter now approximately 20 hours. So they are in the oven and we're about to eat them. Tagged Ben Chapman. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Um, so I think I get this message and I see myself tagging. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to have to respond to this. Then about as I'm sort of typing my response, the next post is um, hopefully no pathogens can survive 10 minutes at 425. And so my response is this. The cook temperature isn't as important as the endpoint temperature measured with the thermometer. Believing them out all day might have created the right conditions for toxin formation, which can be heat stable. It's a risk even if cooked to 165, which would take care of the pathogens. So th- there are two things here that, that that uncertainty comes up. It might have created the right conditions. And it's a risk, even if cooked to 165, because of the because you know, if it did create the right conditions, the toxins might might, well, um, and, might be there. And just to add another layer of complexity, you're you assume that there's staff. I'm assuming you're talking about probably staff aureus, and and it assumes that there is there is at least one viable staph aureus cell on that pizza. Absolutely. 
which which is a big if. Which is a big if, exactly. And, and I, I would put perfringens in there as well, potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, sure. uh, but yeah, that's so there, there there's some uh, uncertainty. So um, uh, uh, one of the commenters says, I would have just thrown them out. You might lose more than $10 by eating them. Uh, then the agent writes, like what kind of toxins, Ben? So then I link to the bad bug book and say, here's the consequence. Here's perfringens and here's staph aureus. Um, and then... Uh, the comment comes up that says, and I see you just added something. Um, <laughs> comment comes up and says, um, I'll let you know how I'm feeling. This is from the agent. I'll let you know how I'm feeling in seven to 21 hours. Thanks, Ben. And uh, then finally, uh, the next day, uh, she writes, they tasted fine and none of us had any ill effects because this is all uncertainty. I mean, that's right. that's exactly it. That's that's the the entire point. And I think that where... You know, bringing this back to the raw milk discussion to the fresh produce side of things, there's always this misconception, not always, there is often a misconception that science tells the truth. And what we do a lot of time is try to, you know, in what you work on and, and you know, when I'm doing research on practices, what we're trying to do is, is show the likelihood that something might happen if the conditions are met, because that helps us make better decisions on whether that's a gamble to take or not. But there's this misconception that it's, well, if I left this pizza on the counter and I didn't get sick, then microbiology and epidemiology is flawed. And I'm totally putting words into um, this agent's uh, Facebook feed. I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's what we're, what she's thinking, but I could see how that linear thought, pops up in, in these types of discussions. That's, I mean, what, everything that we talk about in food safety, there are so many absolutes. It, it's very much about calculating what's the chance. Right. Right. And, and I mean, a, a, absolutely. And, and, and so pe- if people say just theoretically, hypothetically, um, I've been drinking raw milk for five years and I've never gotten sick. I'm like, that's great. Does that does that mean or or again the classic one that we always talk about uh, talking with a with a food processor we've been making it this way since my grandfather owned the business and no one's ever gotten sick and again my response is yet which is right. the same smart ass response that I posted on this person's Facebook <laughs> message that I that I don't know um, but but you know ju- just because and it, and and you you know if food safety Ben food safety would be easy. If every time a food if, – if, if certain foods were always contaminated with pathogens and they always made us sick, we would just not eat those foods, right? It's right. like poison mushrooms. If you eat this mushroom, you'll die. So, boy, don't eat those mushrooms, right? Um, but, but unfortunately, we live in – and again, this is my – probability colored glasses, we live in a world of uncertainty. The pathogen may or may not be there. The pathogen may or may not be at a certain level. That level may or may not cause illness. That person, even with norovirus, is an extra wrinkle. There are apparently some people that are just invulnerable to norovirus because they don't have the receptors to, to bind the virus. So they will never get sick, no matter how much norovirus they're exposed to. So that makes it damned hard to make definitive predictions yeah and and ultimately that's kind of the fun of it (laughs) right like i mean that's the challenge i uh, you know i should say is that it's not the 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 fun of um whether someone is 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 or isn't going to get sick but that's the challenge that that we have 
it, it, that makes this this world to me so so interesting is that nothing is you know an absolute truth and and even you know as you're you're characterizing um put you know, uh tox, toxin or to, you know, um toxicology essentially and I thought, oh, that's why I'm not a toxicologist. And then as you kept talking, I was thinking about other things. And I was like, you know what? That's not fair to even toxicologists because what they're looking at is the uncertainty of trace um, toxins and, and what level of toxicity is needed um, to uh, to cause illness. So, right. yeah, there, there are lots of absolutes on if you have so much, but that the real you know, area that, that people are looking at is if you have just a little bit of this over time, what does that mean? Well, and yeah, and talk about talk about a confusing um, area of research. What about cancer risk, right? Where you're looking at low doses over long periods of time and cancer risk for individuals and then the way that you get data to build the dose response models in those studies is you do animal studies and then you have these safety factors or scaling factors. Well, okay, so mice are like humans except not and 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 that I mean at least at least with microbiology, with food safety microbiology, you know the endpoint, right? We, people actually get sick, but but with 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 cancer risk assessment and and dietary exposure over a lifetime, um, it it just becomes way more complicated. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 as much as we you know we keep circling back to to, to raw milk on this, that's exactly it. Is that the whole issue that that got us started talking about this was that the Minnesota paper. And the lack of data that that's out there, except for the public health data, and to better characterize risk, and you know, I'll echo something you said earlier in this this episode. If someone who is collecting a lot of data and the um, raw milk producers who who are could open that door to that data and share that um, with someone who can who could model it. <laughs> <laughs> like someone on this podcast, um, that might better characterize it. It may help answer some of the uncertainties that are in that Minnesota paper, or it may show us that even even again. Let's say I got I had access to data from a, a Rami milk producer. It's entirely possible I could put all of those that data into a spreadsheet or a series of spreadsheets or a series of equations. And I could come up with a conclusion that, well, gosh, looks like nothing really matters, <laughs> you know? And because of the data set's just too small, or right. maybe there is no correlation between these practices. I mean, and again, that's what what I love so much about, again, not to sing the praises of epidemiologists, but here I go. That's what I love so much about that um, Ruth uh, Petran and Craig Hedberg paper where they looked at inspection scores and they looked at which line items in a restaurant inspection was actually predictive of the possibility of an outbreak. And when lo and behold, most of the things that restaurants are scored on in inspections are not predictive. But there are a few that do, at least in the data set that they analyzed, there are a few that do seem to be predictive. And so that... Um, that to me is is exciting, and that's that's epidemiology, that's statistics, that's uh, that's you know that's the thing that I love about doing what I do. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and that we meet, we need more of those types of papers, not less. I mean that that's the one thing, and you know something that uh, popped up in between the last episode we recorded and, and this one um, was 
a uh, article in USA Today by Liz Zabo um, where we you talked about food safety myths. Doug and I were were interviewed uh, for that, and um, and and one the one or one of the ones that came up was the unlikeliness. Not sorry, not uh, the do restaurant grades matter in predicting restaurant outbreaks? And so I was quoted saying no. And you very rightly sort of called me on that on Twitter. And, and I kind of had some, some stuff uh, ready to go on the, on the P train stuff. And it's not about the grade, but it's about some of those specific line items. Um, But, but that's, but we, but we got one, we got one paper to go on and we need more of that. We need, we need to see how that looks in North Carolina and in Rhode Island. And I I sound like Howard Dean now. Uh, <laughs> in New Hampshire and all the way to the White House. Ah. Uh, <laughs> uh, remember Howard Dean? How 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 many of our listeners will even know what I'm talking about? I guess most of them. But Howard Dean, little... he was the he was the guy that did all those album covers for Yes, right? I think you're right. I think I, th- I think you're thinking of the guy on Sirius Radio. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's a shock jocker, shock jockery. <laughs> Uh, hey, good follow-up. Um, almost hey, like we almost did a whole uh, whole episode on it. I just, I just have one more un- mostly unrelated bit of follow-up, and that is uh, it, it's not it's not well. It's, I guess it's sort of follow-up. Um, I have signed up for this app called Time Hop. Are you familiar with Time Hop? No. Is it like uh, it, do you get a DeLorean? No, no, but almost <laughs> as good. Um, so it is, it is, a, it is a, an, an app that looks at your social media feeds. So Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, and then tells you what you were doing a year ago. Wow. And yeah, so it's pretty cool. So I got one the other day, which reminded me that a year ago we had a foot of snow in New Jersey. <laughs> and of course it showed me the, the picture I posted on, on Facebook, which was quite cool, but I didn't get my I didn't get my time up for today Monday um, that we're recording this, but I got the the one from yesterday. And there's two there's two things, um, both of which I think are of equal importance. Actually, there's there's three things, um, but there's two. Let's see if I can get the uh, yeah I can't get the thing to, to to open the third one. But the, there's two that are equally important that I want to share with you. Um, almost one year ago today, uh, we posted Food Safety Talk podcast number thirty three. Um, entitled uh, Fresh Produce Punk Rock Hippiness. <laughs> and then uh, the other one was a retweet, and I follow, I follow this account, uh, this uh, Twitter account called Florida Man. Are you, are you familiar with Florida Man? I am not familiar with Florida uh, Man. Okay, so what Florida Man, the Twitter account Florida Man does is basically anytime there's a news report that says Florida Man does something, this retweets it. So um, uh, Florida man accused of using Wizenator, comma fleas. So I'm, I'm, I don't remember what a what a Wizenator is. Oh, I know what a Wizenator is. Uh, you do? Huh? Oh yes, I do. Okay. Uh, not well. Do you want to share? I do. I do. It's okay. And I, I know about a Wizenator only because of my affinity for those uh, games that people play on TV with balls and pucks. Um, oh, okay. It is. It's a. Uh, uh, an apparatus or a fake appendage that a athlete may attach uh, to trick a urine test. 
Oh, okay. And you can apparently. Um, I have when I first heard of it, I did I, look this up. I'm looking <laughs> images on on Google. Yes, it, yeah. So, uh, but that I mean, it, what what's actually pretty interesting, I guess, about that headline is that I'm unsure where the fleas would come in when it comes to the <laughs> Wizenator. I understand I, the using the Wizenator, but I don't know how you would use the fleas. Oh, no, fleas as in runs away. Oh. <laughs> F-L-E-E-S. And, and I tried, I clicked on the link, but the story, uh, the story, it's from Florida Newsday, and the story is, is no longer there. So, oh. but, but boy, there are lots of pictures of Wizenators on Google. <laughs> I bet you they're pretty awesome. They are. Um, hey, there's a there's another piece of follow up that we have um, in uh, in the in the show notes um, about we have show notes. We do we even we prepared or well yeah we both prepared. Um, meaning you yeah. So there's the, we, we there's two things. One um, and they both come from a, a, a fan of the show um, and who says that we can share all details freely. John Kimball. Uh, John wrote us a message about uh, two things. One, about um, uh, an article that was posted on the organicauthority.com called 11 Food Storage Mistakes You're Probably Making. And in this post, um, number one on that uh, is you're probably refrigerating berries without rinsing. And I'll just lead, read a little bit of this um, quote from the article. As much as I love berries, if not stored properly, they become little cesspools of bacteria and sometimes mold as quickly as the next day. When you're unpacking your next batch of groceries, immediately rinse your berries using a water vinegar solution of three parts water to one part vinegar. Dry them thoroughly and store in a perforated container. To prevent procrastination, keep a spray bottle of cleaning solution under your sink at all times, which I'm not sure the... um, what the cleaning solution would do other than when I click on the link, it gives you, um, three homemade natural cleaners for sparkling floors. So I'm not sure if you should be using your floor cleaner on your berries. I'm not sure, but I'll go, I'll go out on a limb and say no. Okay, good. Um, so, um, John's comment on this point was, quote, we found that the added moisture actually causes the berries to go bad much faster, particularly with raspberries, blackberries, and the like, which of all of those crevices for holding water. They seem to store just fine in dry condition. Then again, we don't use a vinegar solution. Ooh. Um, so I, I like this um, this comment because probably 30 times in the last five years, uh, uh, an internet meme about rinsing berries in vinegar um, uh, prior to storage in, in the home um, has come up um, just like this. Uh, so this, it's sort of this email trail of, of doing this. And, and so when asked that question, uh, which it's almost weekly that I'll get a, a question about it, and it popped up on e-extension a couple of times in the last month or so, um, here's, here's my um, generic response. It might do something to knock down mold spores and and maybe yeast, but it's probably doing almost nothing when it comes to um, uh, reducing any uh, bacteria, anything that's going to lead to a food safety issue. Um, And so, you know, the, the, and we've talked a ton about washing uh, in the past and, and how rinsing with water, um, you know, may get to a one log reduction, which is something, um, or up to a one log reduction. But things like berries are, are really difficult to keep quality once you once you actually uh, rinse them. And so for me, I would say that this is um, th- this is a, a, a myth 
uh, uh, when it comes to safety. But here's where, where things get a little like dicey. What we're talking about, and John's comment a little bit, is about storage or spoilage organisms um, and, and going bad. And I don't know, I mean, whether it does anything for that. And I try to stay out of that world as much as possible. <laughs> it's a cop-out, right? Yeah, no, I, you know, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, just like I didn't want to talk about um, whether nutrition is the cause of foodborne illness or not. Right. Not my area of expertise. Um, but, you know, yeah, all I would say with respect to berries is if you have fresh berries, just rinse them before you eat them and then eat them, eat them quickly because yeah. <laughs> they're going to go bad. And then we uh, have a tradition where we go up to New Hampshire every summer and we go blueberry picking and we pick a boatload of blueberries. We, we keep them as cold as we can um, until we get back home, um, putting them in the refrigerator in, the, in the, the place where we're staying. And then we get them home and we sort – and when I say we, I mean mostly – Kristen, my wife, we sort through them. We take out the obviously bad, bruised ones. We throw them away. Uh, we take the the ones that are are not uh, not bruised, and I think I think she may rinse them. But the main thing is you got to you get them dry again, and then you freeze them, and then and then they keep. And again, as long as you don't mind eating frozen, and blueberries are pretty tough little critters. They they hold up to it pretty well. I wouldn't do that with a blackberry or a raspberry or anything, but. But you know, blueberries do last pretty well in the in the freezer, and then usually, by the time the year is done, um, it's time to go back to New Hampshire, and we're done with our uh, frozen blueberries. So, <laughs> is that your is that your clock? What's yes, uh, yes, we can't we can't leave for New Hampshire until the blueberries are done. What's our blueberry situation? Oh, three more weeks until we can go. <laughs> um, John also asked another question about uh, preformed uncooked tortillas. Uh, and, and we had a, a bit of an email discussion back and forth, um, that involved, um, uh, Tom Jones, the singer as well, but we will stare, I'll spare everyone those details. Um, but do you want to, do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Cause I think you have some experience with the product that, or a similar product to, to what John was, um, talking about. Yeah, I, I, I eat uh, a lot of uh, corn tortillas. They're kind of my main um, bread-type product that I eat, and I, and I like them. I, I fry them up and have them with eggs sometimes. I uh, actually I had some for breakfast this morning. I toasted a couple up and put some peanut butter on them. Um, and they – and we, we, we live um, – I live in, in Freehold, uh, New Jersey in the in the borough, which is a heavily uh, Latino neighborhood, and there's a local grocery, couple of local grocery stores that that stock these things by the by the gross. I mean, you walk in and there's just you know literally stacks and stacks of these things. You can also buy them at the local Wegmans and, and other other grocery stores, I'm sure. Um, and the way that they sell these in the store is they sell them unrefrigerated. Um, and we bring them home and we refrigerate them uh, and then and then eat them up uh, you know and I, it's like you know it takes a while and they but the date on them they have a date on them and the date is far in the future um and i think at least the ones that i am familiar with are uh, the ones that the ones that I'm familiar with do have um, uh, 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 propionate in them, uh, sodium propionate to control mold growth, and they also have. I think they use lime juice or there are other acidic ingredients which lowers the pH. I suspect that they're also a fairly low water activity, um, and you know, and in fact, I've never seen one of these go moldy, even though sometimes they've hung around for a while in in my fridge. And again, they're they're distributed. 
um, you know, at the retail level, they're unrefrigerated. And so I, yeah, I suspect we could, you could probably keep them unrefrigerated if you, if you wanted to. So I'm, I'm not terribly worried about their microbial stability. I'm not terribly worried about their food safety. Um, and, and again, it was, and John did have a little bit of trouble in like kind of finding the details on the product that, that he, he likes. Um, and, and again, the, the formulation of the one that he was using does seem to be different in that it doesn't seem to have, uh, the propionate there as a preservative and doesn't seem to have, um, uh, you know, ingredients, ingredients to, to make it acidified. So, um, yeah, probably not a high risk food cause we're not seeing a lot of outbreaks, but obviously if you had, uh, somebody working in one of those factories that had salmonella on their hands, certainly we've, we've seen an example in California of a woman that worked at a bakery, um, break baking bread and, and she was a, a in, sick with salmonella or was a carrier and, and did uh, contaminate a bunch of loaves of bread when, when handling them with her bare hands when she took them out of the oven. Um, so we, we have seen examples of outbreaks like that, but not because the product supports the growth. And, and again, you never want to use uh, spoilage and mold growth as an indicator of safety, but, but it is one uh, one data point that I would consider in, in making a judgment. But in the grand scheme of things, no, I'm not terribly worried about this product, at least the one that I'm buying. The one that uh, John is talking about is perhaps a little bit more problematic because it doesn't seem to have the same uh, preservatives. But but again, I would say, and again, the, you know, it's, it's we can speculate for a long time, but the simplest thing would be just to take some and go throw it in a water activity meter and, and see what the water activity is. I suspect it's less than 0.85 if I had to guess. Cool. Well, thanks to John for um, for engaging us, and this the show goes really, really well when we get questions and the, there are things for us to, to talk about, and we don't have to worry about doing our preparation. Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we still have to prepare. And, but yeah, thanks to John for for reaching out and for offering his perspective. Uh, you know, there's a well, there's always news happening. There's always stuff that we want to talk about, but we would and we and we can talk about. Obviously, whatever we're interested in, but I would much rather talk about stuff that that we're interested in that are that's also of interest to our listeners. Absolutely. Speaking of which, we know we have a fan of this uh, segment, a little thing we like to call um, a, a history of IAFP in history of food safety. <laughs> so let me uh, let me do the um, uh, intro for that. History of IAFP. Wow. Wow, that was uh, that was very um, that was very 1990s. It was, it was. You know what I did that on? An 808. It's a Casio little uh, little uh, sampler thing that that was uh, uh, in the uh, Sears catalog book when when I was uh, 10 years old that I really really wanted to get and I never got one. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, name checked by the Beastie Boys in a song uh, where they say nothing sounds quite like an 808. I thinking I think you're thinking of uh, an Intel uh, eighty two eighty six. I think I think I might be. I think you're thinking of an uh, an eighty song um, where someone lost their phone number or someone else has their old phone number five four two six. That's my number. <laughs> yes, I think it's Joe Walsh wrote that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Good. Good. I got nothing. I got nothing. Okay. Um, so uh, we are uh, into the hundred years of IAFP. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> my Maserati does one eighty five. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I'm a little slow today. 
I just I had to go two. I went two and one there. Um, so uh, one, uh, 100 years of IFP, the 1990s. Uh, in fact, that's why I chose the 808 as the intro. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this this one was um, uh, written by Manpreet Singh and Amit Mori. Um, and uh, this the, there's a, just it's sort of just a short update uh, here. But what I wanted to, to really highlight uh, was a paragraph here on research trends from the 1990s uh, continued with an increased focus on listeria and salmonella in early years, shifting towards E. coli 157 in the later part. Uh, the 1990s also saw emergence of novel rapid bacterial identification methods and intervention strat- strategies. Um, there was continued interest in expanding the application of irradiation to improve food safety and maintaining product quality. Uh, and um, the emergence and gaining popularity of processed and convenience foods made it inevitable to understand shelf life of these products and develop technologies to extend shelf life without compromising pro- product safety. Um, so a couple of things from from the history that uh, uh, you know we, we mentioned uh, earlier in our uh, epidemiology uh, discussion about um, you know better data and quicker data um, and and absolutely the '90s. If, if I was to pick one thing, looking back at at a decade that I wasn't really in food safety for, and think this is what what really 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 still matters uh, today, has got to be the adoption. Uh, well, the use and adoption by lots and lots of different labs of PFG and genetic fingerprinting of of pathogens, um, and you know which, which hap- you know that that rapid identification. Something that um, was more specific than what we could, uh, than what, what individuals were focusing on, and trying to connect outbreaks together. That seems like it was really, really monumental because we're still using a lot of it today. What do you think? Um, when I think when I think about the 1990s, and I did I did live through 1990s as a food safety person. Thanks. Uh, thanks You're welcome. Ben. You're welcome. Um, uh, I would have to say, to me, the characterizing event was uh, the the mega reg, as Roger Cook likes to call it, the meat and poultry HACCP mega reg mm-hmm. of the 1990s. To me, that was the, the the when the when the tide turned, and well, I mean, the tide's always turning, but um, <laughs> that was that was the, twice that, a day. That was a key. That was a that was a key event um, uh, in terms of what was happening in, in food safety, at least with respect to meat and poultry. It really did uh, send a huge uh, a huge ripple through the through the, the meat industry in terms of uh, in terms of what it was requiring everybody to do. Cool, and and I guess um, I had a really great visit last week and, and good discussion with our friend Kathy Cutter at Penn State, and and she's been working um, for you know quite some time with meat and uh, poultry processors uh, on on food safety. And, and she said something about, um, we, we were just having this conversation about FSMA um, and how, you know, the, the rest of the processing world is, is now going to be asked to do, you know, similar things to some of those small meat processors were asked to do in the mid-90s. And, and it took a while, but that, that entire industry and what we've learned about how to, um, how to manage risk with that industry is, has really shaped, um, sh- you know, shaped other food safety issues. You know, so, so I agree. I mean, I think you're, you're right, uh, on that, on, um, how much that, that individual piece of, re- uh, regulation still, uh, it, it matters for how we regulate other things. Indeed. Cool. 
Um, all right. Well, that's uh, history of uh, 100 years of IAFP, 1990s. Do you do you, need to, do you do the song at the end? You do the song at the end. Yeah, I'm going to do it right now. Okay. 100 years of IAFP journals. Wah! I'm not sure what the end part is. but uh, <laughs> I think it's Howard Dean. I think it is Howard Dean. <laughs> oh, man. Um so I, we, I mean, we've pretty much done a whole show here, but I have one. There was one other thing that that I had that I wanted to talk to you about, and it's norovirus. And it's not just because we are on a big norovirus project, but there's been a whole bunch of noro stuff going on, and it has to do with sanitizers. And we've got this friend of ours, Chris Gunter, who is on a, uh, a going on a cruise. And so let me. <laughs> you mean Christ Gunter? Christ Gunter, the second coming. Um, so, so here's the, the situation since our last, uh, episode that we recorded, um, there's been two major, uh, outbreaks of norovirus on cruises, one on a, uh, vessel called Explorer of the Seas, where there were like 700 people sick out of 3000 and another one, uh, on, uh, the Caribbean princess. And so the and there was 130 illnesses, 140 illnesses on that, um, uh, on that vessel. So, um, turns out, uh, our, uh, guest from, uh, episode three or episode four, Chris Gunter, um, and my good friend here, uh, was, uh, was going on that, that exact line on that exact, uh, vessel, Caribbean princess. So he, he had flown to Houston, um, got up, turned the news on and saw this, uh, picture of, uh, the the vessel and that they were going to go on it and there was norovirus so he said he posted something on facebook on any um uh suggestions and my suggestions were don't go uh, don't, no no i i don't have my I, I didn't yeah i guess i could have said that i said um wash your hands and take lots of pictures so you can tell me about it It'd be even better <laughs> yeah um so he posted a couple of things and, and you and i got into a discussion with him and and looking at the other coverage of these um these outbreaks one thing that seems to be pervasive is the use of hand sanitizers alcohol-based hand sanitizers as a risk management step um so a quote from um a uh let me find the quote um i can't find it um Oh, here it is. This is a quote from a media story about the Explorer of the Seas uh, outbreak from someone from Rochester, New York, who said, quote, there were a lot of people in bathrooms getting sick and they had hand sanitizers all over and you were constantly washing your hands. You couldn't go into the dining rooms without having some pure out. They were washing down railings. They were washing down the seats after you got out from the pool. They were washing anything that came in contact with passengers. So this sounds really, really good. The question that I have that that you ask as well, and I'll steal the the punchline, is having Purell or some alcohol-based hand sanitizer is okay as long as it's the right one. And that right one, um, according to the published literature that's out there and also some of the stuff that, that you talked about, really is this Gojo Purell hand sanitizer vf 481 so so chris we asked chris um if he could snap a picture of the hand sanitizer label anything that we could find to identify whether they're using that evidence-based you know best best one um and he couldn't but he did go in and uh talked uh with someone um at the medical center so he said, uh, I asked what the hand sanitizer product was and was met with a little surprising quote, why do you want to know? Hmm, because you're asking me to shoot it all over my hand several times a day. <laughs> <laughs> 
they couldn't show me a product label and instead told me it was an alcohol-based gel. So there you go. And then he said, looks like I'll be in internet dark for a while. See ya. So... And um, is, is, is he just as a bit of follow up? Is he back yet? He, he's back, and, and and did he get norovirus? I've not seen. He would. I, I assume he would have told me. Um, so I don't think so. Okay. Um, but uh, maybe he's keeping that to himself. I'm not sure. Uh, but but I mean, what the hell? Yeah. Right. Cra- crazy. I right. Mean, it's I, this is this is insanity. Right. <laughs> I mean, why <laughs> telling people to use an alcohol based hand sanitizer? That is no more effective than water or, or, or washing fact, your hands against norovirus. Less effective. Insanity. Less effective. If you look at yeah. – um, there's a, a Jacus Mo paper from mm-hmm. four years ago that, that showed that gel – whatever the uh, – at least the, their discussion said um, the uh, lotion that's used to keep your hands dr- uh, from drying out after using it may have a preservative effect on the, uh, on the virus on the hands. So it's so it's it's less. It's like you could if you did nothing, you would do more. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right. You get it? you get me. Uh, um, but so so maybe they are using VF four eighty one, and I hope they are. I hope that's you know that that someone just doesn't know the terminology. But you got to think that the the cruise ship industry with the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars um, on the line. And the the bad press that they've had on this over the years would would have someone who says, um, "Hey, we got to use the right thing out here," but but they're not able to articulate that to to someone who pops into the medical center. And and, and it to me also shows this other issue. So I go on a cruise ship, I see a picture that says um, use hand sanitizer and people are telling me to use hand sanitizer, but maybe I brought a whole bunch of hand sanitizer because I knew that this was going to be an issue because I had just seen it. Did I bring the right stuff? Probably not because I can't buy it at CVS or wherever um, product placement. I Walgreens. I don't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no one's sponsoring the show. Um, but you know, the, the thing is, you, you, without telling people about the right things to do for risk management, they're potentially hurting the whole process. Arg, So angry, Don. Yeah. 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 And actually, you know, as a, as a related, it's a semi, semi-related example. And since you mentioned, you know, grocery stores or places where you can buy things, um, and, and Wegmans doesn't sponsor this show either, but they should. Um, but I uh, had a citizen food safety tweet. I was in the grocery store the other day, uh, and, you know, one of the things that I like about Wegmans is they have – hand sanitizer and uh, a double bag, you know, an extra bag for in, at the, the meat counter. And, and again, the pathogens that are typically associated with meat, regular alcohol-based hand sanitizer like Purell, um, the standard formulation, do work. And so I, um, you know, got a shot of sanitizer for my hands and it, it was, that was almost empty, but I got some. And then I looked right next to it and there was a place for uh, where the double bagging, the extra bags are, and it was empty. Oh. And so I made a citizen food safety post, you know, like tagged with citizen food <laughs> I safety. I think it's – in that case, it's a citizen food safety arrest. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I, I didn't I didn't copy you, but I put the hashtag in, so I knew you'd see it eventually. I and I copied uh, I at replied Wegmans, and uh, and 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 again I had a got a you know got a call out Wegmans. They um, 
they responded to me. I didn't, I didn't expect them to. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just out there like saying stuff and, and being a jerk on, on Twitter. Cause that's apparently what I do. But, um, they were very good. They responded. They said, uh, we're sorry about that. Um, can you tell us what store? Excellent. And I was like, yeah, sure. It's the, uh, it's the Manalpin store. And they responded and said, okay, we'll get on that. We'll let somebody know. Awesome. So, I mean, that's, <clears throat> and it's not, it's not Wegman's food safety Twitter. It's just Wegman's Twitter. But somebody, somebody is watching it. They're paying attention to it. They're re- and I don't know if they did anything. Maybe they didn't. Okay, I have no way of knowing. I can certainly check that store next time. But that, at least they, they saw that I at replied them. They responded to it. And then they promised some action. And, and they uh, at least appeared to not discount you as a crazy person. Right. Right. Like exactly. that's, yeah, yeah. That, I'm, that's the way it should work. Um, in the communication side of things. And, and like you said, we don't know whether they were able to, whether they actually followed up with it and you can check, um, next time, but that's, yeah, that, that sounds, sounds awesome. Um, I got one more Noro thing for you. Sure. Uh, this is, this is up in, as they say, in your neck of the woods. Uh, there was a, a decent size outbreak. Um, and I say decent size cause it was like hundreds of people, uh, got sick at a, at a New York resort called the, um, Mohonk mountain lodge. No, Mohonk, Mo, Mohonk mountain house. Do you know about this place? Um, I think it's called Mochunk. <laughs> Are you sure? I don't think so. Everybody was calling it on Twitter. Well, that's what they were calling it because I think there is – because, like, it was like – Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mo honk, mo chunk. So you're right. That's what they were calling on Twitter. But it's apparently this, like, big thing, this big place I've never heard of. I've never heard of it. Um, It's in the Catskills. That's where the fancy fancy schmancy folks go. Uh, I'm I'm sure we're – I'm, I'm sure I'm making someone mad. Um, but anyway, this, this, uh, resort, here's, here's a unique situation for me. Um, this resort had a couple hundred people that got sick from Noro, including, um, uh, you know, it said uh, up to 12 staff members and, um, the ownership closed the resort for a week and said, we're not accepting anybody in, uh, sent a message out to staff, which was then reprinted into a, uh, in, in a local newspaper saying, look, we're going to have to cut back hours, uh, over the next week. Cause we don't want people getting sick. Um, and w- the best way for us to, to really, um, deal with this, this norovirus outbreak is close things down, let the virus run its course within our staff and, uh, and, and also hire somebody who knows how to get rid of norovirus in, in a hotel situation. This is, I mean, to me, that absolutely, I've never seen anything like it from, I mean, I've seen a lot of, uh, quote, fast moving viruses and I've seen outbreaks, but, um, this is them treating a, a, a hotel resort like a cruise ship and saying, we're going to shut things down for here for a while. Uh, it's a fantastic, um, it's, it, it seems like it may be overkill, but, I, and I don't know, I mean, this is always this, um, risk benefit, uh, decision that the business has to take, but the, they clearly are taking it serious enough when you have 200 illnesses and not trying to, um, just put a bandaid over the situation. At least that's how it's reported. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I, th- I think it was good. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't have the a- exact story in front of me. I'm looking at the Twitter stream marked with the hashtag right now. But um, my my understanding is that they may be underreacted at first. Yeah. In other words, th- there was this outbreak. There was, a, I guess, a, a, a convention going on there. 
again, anytime you have a convention with social media savvy people, you can bet that your outbreak, your norovirus outbreak is going to be all over social media. Um, it's the uh, NEIT, I think. It was uh, well, libra- a librarian's li- conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. love those librarians. They, love, they know the social media world. They do. Um, and, and so, but, and then I think, so there was an outbreak during their convention. And then I think there were, I remember seeing somebody tweeting that they were there right after the outbreak. Um, and like the weekend after and they, and the place was still open and they were complaining that they would have liked to have been informed, like, so they could have canceled their reservations. And, And then I think, at the, and then and then sometime after that the i don't know the exact timeline but sometime after that the 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 resort closed so yeah again good for them for doing the right thing um although it, maybe they didn't quite react fast enough but hey you know i mean it, it, these days if you if you get it you know if you, if you get it eventually you get it yeah. right then we got to we got to call you out for 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 doing a good job yeah exactly and I, I guess the um what why i like this was it wasn't the health department that said you've got to close this up at least that's not how it was portrayed it was mm-hmm. the business saying okay we can't we we cannot figure this out on our own we've got to we got to shut shut things down and, and i wrote about it in blog, in um, in a blog post on barf blog uh, where the you know, they don't mention it directly in the post, but this unintended effect would be you send your staff home for a week. Hopefully they're over the shedding of the virus um, by the time they come back. Uh, and they're not, you know, potentially passing that on working while ill there. You've, you've taken that, um, that um, temptation out of the, out of the mix, uh, which is also, which is also great. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Hey, so I got a hard out today. Um, yes, you do. Yeah, like in in a minute or so. So I think we should, um, if in, unless you've got something um, really pressing, I think. We oh should, no, that's we, that's good. I think this was a, this was a good show. Awesome. Well, Don, thanks again. Um, thanks to our uh, good friends uh, on the uh, Complete Patient Board for um, uh, firing us up and and being part of the conversation and giving us something to uh, uh, to reflect on. Um, as always, uh, for the listeners, please feel free to, uh, send us feedback like John Kimball did, uh, or, uh, just go ahead and, and rate us, uh, good or bad, uh, on iTunes. We appreciate all the feedback that we get and we do this show. And I've said this, I say this every week almost, or every couple of weeks, we do this without it, without the listeners, but they certainly make it easier and, and better. Uh, it's a better show, uh, the more, uh, feedback we get. So, uh, so keep it up. Absolutely. Thanks, Don. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, so I've got a uh, 
graduate committee meeting in Chapel Hill at one, but I have to swing by the, co- the uh, campus first to pick somebody up. So. Oh no, no problem at all. Uh, great show. That was that was awesome. We we're in a we're in a groove. Um, good stuff. Anything yeah. anything else? No, I think I'm just just putting in uh, some reminders here. So. Oh, I have something quick. Sure. Because um, I know you guys, uh, based on Kristen's uh, posts, the Olympics have, have also taken over our house. <laughs> okay. and, and I convinced the boys that because they really want to watch, um, you know, kid shows and cartoons. And J- Jack's actually really into documentaries. I think I mentioned that before. But right now he's huh. interested in, like, Netflix documentaries on Egypt. Whoa. Yeah, he's, the kid is, he's all about documentaries. Whoa. Um, but uh, I convinced them that the Olympics are a two-week-long documentary about sports. <laughs> Okay. Well, and but I mean, do you guys have? Uh, I mean, do you? Does he? I mean, because if it's Netflix and you've got the bandwidth, yeah, you just he watches, just yeah. watch an iPad, right? He, he does. Yes. Okay. Yeah. They got. They, they have that option, but they they are very much about. I want to watch this show on the big TV. It's Not, like no big TV is showing this other thing. It's, yeah, it's, it's a documentary on sports that's two weeks long. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, we're it's all like uh, it's like at my at my, at my parents' house. Uh, basically, the 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 television it gets uh, it gets hockey and the weather because oh. <laughs> that's all my dad watches. Your parents' TV sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I get the weather from the internet, but if I had a TV that only got hockey, it hockey, would be awesome. Yeah. We I have a TV in my office um, upstairs in my house that almost only gets hockey. So I understand. Yeah, that. I, I think I, I want to say that their TV. I think it's a. It's not even a flat screen TV. That's how old their yeah, technology is. But as long as it gets hockey, uh, <laughs> seems like it's working. <laughs> seems perfect. Um, my TV also gets baseball, though. <laughs> yeah, my my dad watches watches some baseball too. I think, but yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, hey, I gotta run. Um, right. Thanks. Thanks again. I will talk to you. So, well, I'll see you right, in two and- weeks. Yeah, and do you um, do you do you have time to put the audio uh, up, or should I put the audio up for? No, we, I should be able to do it. So I'm gonna. Uh, okay. I have to have a shower. I don't have to leave for another twenty minutes. So okay, um, I've un- I'm in. This was an unshowered podcast. <laughs> it showed. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll talk to you. All right. Take care, Ben. Bye.